This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ZCNYC. Thanks for listening. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. Can you read the story? The Bodhisattva Robber, Jataka Tales. The Bodhisattva Robber, What's Right, What's Wrong, as told by Sensei Rafe Martin. Martin. Satapata Jataka, number 279. Long ago, the Bodhisattva was the leader of a robber gang. A man who lent money to a distant villager dies. His wife, dying too, tells their son to get the money they'd owed. they're owed. The boy heads off and does so, then starts for home. Meanwhile, the Bodhisattva and his robber gang are lying in waiting along a forest road, looking for travelers to rob. When the boy enters the forest and starts walking along the road, a snarling jackal, jackal appears and blocks his way, as if trying to prevent him from going farther. A mad jackal he thinks, and picking up stones to throw, drives it away. The boy walks on. A crane flying overhead and seeing the boy calls out loudly. A good sign, thinks the boy, and looking up, thanks the crane. Then the robbers spring from hiding and grab him. The Bodhisattva asks, do you carry money from some loan repayment? How do you know? Stammers the boy. Were your parents ill? Asks the Bodhisattva. Yes, my father died, and my mother is quite sick. I'm hurrying home to her now. The Bodhisattva says, I understand the language of birds and beasts. Your mother has already died. She was that little jackal trying to stop you from going further and was warning you that robbers were hiding just ahead. That crane wasn't your friend and wasn't wishing you well. It was actually announcing that you carried money from a loan repayment and so were ripe for robbing. It must have been your enemy in the past life. Go home and hold a service for your parents. Don't make assumptions. Pay better attention in the future. You got it all wrong. Though his men protest, he lets the boy and his money go. So, thank you.
Jataka tales. Um, so in each of these tales, the Buddha-to-be takes a form in which the Bodhisattva life is lived and dies and is reborn in yet another form. So the tales are teaching of the lives of the Buddha in previous incarnations before his final rebirth as the Buddha. That's the formal teaching in Buddhism. In the specifics of each story, there are teachings that point to the qualities that the Bodhisattva and Buddhas offer to other beings. Even if great harm or death is suffered by the Buddha-to-be as a result, Um, So, one of the challenges for us in this time and place looking at a tale like this is to discern what the tale is offering beyond the cultural references that that it came from, which probably around from the time of the Buddha's death, to maybe 200 A.D., 300 A.D., so covering a period of uh, about 400 years. And some of the tales have more of a Theravadan perspective, and some of them have more of a Mahayana perspective. And of course, we view them through that latter perspective within the Zen school. And I picked this tale because I thought it was interesting, and I thought it would be a good place to look at some things. Um, and, um, and so our task in looking at this, as I started to say, is to kind of focus in on what's important and what's um, not important. Uh, there's a lot of detail in here, uh, which is reflective of the times that the story arose from. Is not necessarily, it's easy to get stuck on that detail, but it's not the main point or points of the story. And so that's, that's what we have to discern. So um, I'll offer a quote. And by the way, this, as mentioned, this is by the, the way this tale is presented is by Rafe Martin Sensei, who's a cl- close personal friend of mine of 40 years and is a well-known author and story professional storyteller uh, and Zen teacher, and um, has written and been to Zen Mountain Monastery on a number of occasions, leading storytelling workshops. I think he's been here, but I'm not sure. Um, and um, in his, in the accompaniment commentary he offers on this, he, he quotes Howard, Howard Pyle, P-Y-L-E, just curious, from my own literary perspective, does anyone know who Howard Pyle was? Okay, thank you. He, he was a writer from the 20th century, mid, really mid-20th century. And he says, and now I will tell how it first came about that Robin Hood fell afoul of the law. <laughs> so that's how, he, how uh, Sensei Martin introduces this. 
So in this tale, the Bodhisattva is a robber. So I want to stop here and see where you're going to take this. I know where I'll point to where, where I'd like it to go, but, you know, <laughs> it's not in my control. It's in your hands. Yes. We, we need a volunteer. Um, I like that um, the Bodhisattva was a robber. I feel like there's hope for me yet. <laughs> and because I, I tend to think like a thief. <laughs> so, like, uh, um, yeah. so can you say, if you're willing, can you say more like that, of, of that? If, you, if, um, if you're so, okay sharing that. Yeah, so... Um, I don't know, it comes up a lot. It came up, I think, today or yesterday. I can't remember exactly why. I, but um, just in a situation, um, I could do the right thing or I could, you know, oh, I can see how people would do this or could do this, you know. or uh, I can't think of a, an example right yeah. now, but yeah. So... So what do you think the story is asking? What are the questions the story is asking? And by the way, I'm going to invite everyone to make at least one comment. So um, please. And when you're done, you can hand it to the person to your right. <laughs> well, what does it mean to steal? What does it mean to steal? Um. I love the fact that the Bodhisattva is a robber. Um, <clears throat> I think, aren't, as has already pointed out, aren't we all? Yeah. Anyone? Um, is there anyone who does not understand that statement? Because that's a very profound statement. And and what are we stealing? Please go on. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and I think the Bodhisattva is, um, says it very clearly. I think. I mean, I, when I first read the paper, first I said, the Bodhisattva, a robber, how can that be? But he's challenging me when he says, don't make assumptions. Um, and he's telling me right in the story, like, why are you assuming? And why am I assuming that scary monster jackal is necessarily bad? So, And the wonderful crane is necessarily good. Right. You know, so, it, it just... I'm jumping in, but the the blue heron, for example, is a symbol of realization and the path. And here's the heron or the crane, if you will, uh, taking a different role. Please go on. No, I, I was just going to say that it's. I think it's pointing towards something about uh, how what we may assume as suffering may be a blessing. <clears throat> so... This opportunity, you know, I think that's one of the things that comes to mind. So. Yeah. You know, um, so I'm going to comment on comments. Um, this is a mando, by the way, which is one of the forms that teachers teach. And it's uh, less formal, obviously, than some other forms, such as Dharma discourse. Um, and it allows for um, 
question and answer, and there's some freedom in this. Um, so I hope you take advantage of that. It's, it's a terrific opportunity. Please. I'm struck by the boy or the man. Boy, man. Boy. Um, yeah. Son. Yeah. So um, ignoring the cultural symbolism of what he's interpreting. Um, uh, thank you. Sorry. Uh, he's trying to do the right thing, right? And somehow he's not. And we're told that by the Bodhisattva, but we don't know if he's telling the truth of the matter. Um, like, for all we know, like, while the Bodhisattva, in a personal opinion, is doing the right thing by letting him go back to his mother, um, we don't necessarily know, because we're not told, if the Bodhisattva actually is telling the truth that his mother's died. Right? We're, we're just no, well, right? let, me, let me jump in there, because that's, that's, I mean, he's labeled as the Bodhisattva. But I mean, if we all have the bodhisattva in us, right, or we all have the potential to do that, like, he, so he definitely knows. This is knows. the Buddha. This is the coming Buddha. Okay. We, we can believe him. Okay. In the so, I mean, of this story. I mean, it's just it's interesting because, like, he's, the boy is trying to do well, but he's not. And, like, how is he supposed to know? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and especially because in his cultural context, like, if your mother tells you to do something, I, you're probably supposed to do it. Like, his mother, who was sick, asked him to do this, and yet he's somehow mm-hmm. doing the wrong thing. And I am uncomfortable with that. Okay. In the context of, like, what is a moral action, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why is it more moral for him, in this case, to go home? Or never to have left, I guess. Why is it more moral? For him to go home and do a service to, for his parents, particularly his mother, which is what he's told to do at the end. As opposed to have continued listening, because that was her uh, clearly her dying wish was for her to go mm-hmm. pay this loan. So again, looking at the time and place and the 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 kind of way the story is held, um, you know, it's, the robber chief is defined as the bodhisattva by definition, not a lightweight title. I mean, uh, I understand that. It just it feels yeah. like it feels like if I were him standing there, I'd be very. I don't know how I'd feel. I'd feel very ambiguous about it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Like, how do you know what is the moral action? And you you don't. don't. You don't. You will never know. And that, when you I, face I just, those options. I feel very ambiguous about that. That, yeah. that. So the question is: Given that, you will not know the outcome of your op, of your the options and actions before that. What is the guiding principle? You know what is good and what is bad is is really what underlies this this tale, and 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 within a Buddhist context, what supports that, what directs us, what holds that. Anybody else? Yeah, this also makes me feel, think about you know how our teachers can come in really unexpected forms, right? How. And I think you talk about this a lot, and other teachers talk about this a lot, is you know, people who make us uncomfortable or rub us the wrong way can often be the teachers. And I think a robber certainly is something or someone who would startle you and you'd want to other that being, and yet they may actually have the answer to insight. So let me tell you a true story um, that took place some years ago. Um, where uh, a woman was, um, I think it was, I may not have the details 100%, but my recollection of this going back 20 or 25 years 
uh, a young woman was sleeping in a, um, a bedroom that was associated with a spiritual center, and a man broke in in the middle of the night and uh, demanded her valuables and was threatening to take physical advantage of her. And there she was, scared, obviously. Her life was at stake. And all of a sudden she stopped and she said, you must be very, very desperate to do something like this. And he stopped. He stopped. He started crying. And he turned around and he walked away. Now, I'm not suggesting anything more than using that as an example of what can happen in certain circumstances where she had the wherewithal to to say that. That's not usually the outcomes, but that was an outcome. So that's what your comment brought up for me. That's a true story. Um, Like like everyone else, also... um, kind of encouraged uh, to see the Bodhisattva portrayed as a robber. Um, ho- however, um, he, he's a very ethical robber, right? Like, so he's like, he has this moral code that he's working on that even in the circumstance where he's the robber chief, so like the other robbers are like expecting him to be like probably the most badass robber, and he's doing this actually very ethical thing, which is cool at the same time, one of the frustrations that I've actually had in reading the other tales is that he always does the right thing. And I'm like, I'm kind of missing the struggle because like I think of my own life and I think of, I think of times when I've stolen stuff and I haven't felt, you know, like I haven't done the right thing, you know? So it's like, I'm kind of, I, re- I read it and I'm like, okay, but like, he's like, the most noble deer in the forest. He's the most wise dog in the pack. You know, it's like always, and I'm like, where's the, str- like where I'm, I'm trying to relate to it and I'm actually having difficulty. So what about that? I mean, oh. what's, what, what is the issue? What's the problem? <laughs> I guess the issue for me is like, is that sense of like, well, that could never be me then because like I struggle way more than that. Like I don't always necessarily go right to the right decision. Like I'm not always the, you know, the wisest deer in the forest or, you know, the most noble robber, you know? So like, I guess for me, like I just sort of feel like, Oh, well I suck, you know? So you have to read past the surface. Yeah. And that's true of every one of these tales. So what's the last line of the, Yeah. Uh, Though his men protest, he lets the boy and his money go. Yeah. So, what does that mean? What does you know? Fill in the blanks here. So it it means that he he engages in. you know, whatever, a teaching moment, an altercation, a, you know, what with his fellow robbers and says, no, we're not, we're not going to do this now. But you were, you were stating before you had trouble relating to him. And whereas in your life, you see difficulty 
in making these choices. What do you think? Do you think he just did? It's a band of robbers. They make their living doing this. Right. And and they're in a survival mode. And how did he get to be the chief of the robbers? Wasn't by being a nice guy. Well, exactly. That's why I'm kind of like. Yeah. And so someplace along the line, this chief robber did this. And do you think it was free of the karma of his associates of how they reacted to this? How, how do you think they reacted to it? How they reacted to this? Yeah. They were not happy. But what does that mean they were not happy? Does that mean they sulked a little? What does that mean? It might have meant that they, you know, tried to fight him, that they... It might have meant they know. killed him. Okay. I mean, we're in the robbing business. What are we, what are we doing here? And, and, you know, put yourself back 2,000 years <clears throat> in a forest where you're robbing people. Yeah. With weapons. Things don't always go well. People may end up dead. Yeah. Your people, the people you're robbing. So in that context, you know, to, to see beyond. Um, I, you've heard me say this a million times. There are no free rides in the Dharma. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets a free ride here. There's no pass, go, collect $200. Get out of jail free. You know, ain't there. Any other comments? Let's. Please, nobody speak twice until everyone's spoken once. (laughs) But if you fall off your chair, you can speak twice. (laughs) We all want to speak. Unlike what's been said so far, I found it quite upsetting that the Bodhisattva was a robber. <laughs> um, because I think of, I, I haven't read any of the other tales, but mm-hmm. just from my own reading in the past, I tend to think of him as somebody who um, puts his own well-being below that of others. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't go along with my um, perception of a of a robber and what he's, you know, taking, taking somebody else's stuff. And then now I, I will tell you how it first came about that Robin Hood fell afoul of the law. What does that mean? It doesn't say it on that piece oh. of paper. I'm quoting. I'm, yeah. And now, I, this is a storyteller, Howard Pyle, very famous writer, won many awards and books, novels. And now I would tell how it first came about that Robin Hood fell afoul of the the law. So who was Robin Hood, right? We all know who Robin Hood was. He was a a thief. He was a lawbreaker. He robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. Right. And we could use someone like that right now. (laughs) Because right now we have robbing from the poor and giving to the... And that's called the government. That's called the law. I'm I'm dead serious. That's Mm -hmm. called the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his, what, your image that he should... Yeah, be a total nice guy. You, you know, either this or that is what I'm reducing mm-hmm. it to. And that this story doesn't do that because it so turns, it, turns it around. Ra- that. Yeah, that's exactly right. But it's upsetting to me because I, I don't want to see him as this. So whose problem is this? Yes, mine. 
thank you. <laughs> you know, Dido Roshi used to tell, I mean, Dido Roshi, you know, joined the Navy when he was underage, right after World War II, um, was in Italy, um, countless bars, bar fights, and associated um, um, places of work, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he was fond of telling, you know, what is a bodhisattva? That in the midst of a bar fight, and I don't know if you've ever seen a real bar fight, but it's kind of different than what's on TV and maybe more savage. Uh, someone comes along and grabs the two people and holds them apart. Who is that someone? He's a six foot four uh, hell's angel with a beard and covered with tattoos. And he says, you go over there and you go over there. And he would say the Bodhisattva appears in the midst of that. That's the Bodhisattva. Now that hell's angel, what is his life? What does he do? What has he done? What will he do? But in that moment, he's a bodhisattva. In that moment. And is that not true of you and I? In the midst of the stealing that we've done? And for that matter, who was the Buddha in his first life? A very wealthy prince who was living extravagant pleasures Mm -hmm. and so forth. Which we can't really relate to. Different time, culture, understanding of what is. Um, So, uh, again, what's the important points of what's being offered here? The most important point is how someone, you already mentioned this, the most important point is how it relates to you. That's the point of these stories. So when we see the disconnect between what our expectation is of how a bodhisattva should be and how it's being presented, um, that's an important perspective to study, to be aware, and to relate to personally. Um, so uh, I don't know. I have, a, I have problems when I read these stories, uh, maybe because it's the cultural context. Um, but the... Where he, like, for instance, I get caught on things like, you know, how does the Bodhisattva know the language of the birds and beasts? Um, if he's, if he's not the Buddha yet, or, you know, even if he is the Buddha, I, I get stuck there too. I'm like, how does the Buddha know? How does an enlightened person know um, what birds and beasts are saying? So if he's not the Buddha yet, but he's just a, he's, he's not the Bodhisattva yet, is he? He's, he's just a I, robber. I can tell you how he knows. He Googled it. <laughs> All right. So this is what I'm talking about about not getting stuck in the irrelevant. Take the story as it right. is. Hold the story. Take it within. It's not important. That's that's not the lesson of the story. Is how does he know? Uh, beyond that, though, I have to tell you that in my own life experiences, uh, I can relate to animals and trees communicating with me and me communicating with them. And if you've ever picked up a camera and walked through a forest with a assignment of making love with light or a tree or um, 
find your journey, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I, so I don't want to be stuck on these kinds of issues. They come up for us, but let them go. See the story as a whole and look past, you know, this is not a scientific uh, exploration. This is a cultural and spiritual exploration. And the cultural is your cultural, your ability to look past your places where your mind raises the question and says, well, that's not possible, you know. You're working out of a, you know, in that context, in that specific context. I'm not condemning you. But we tend to work out of a rational, linear, sequential way. And the story is not that. It's not about that. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. I'm like four days. Okay, can microphone? Um, so I'm reading and hearing this, and just because I'm totally new, are these like on? Are you supposed to read these online beforehand? Mm-mm. Okay, I just want to make sure. I, didn't. I purposely okay. did not publicize <coughs> which one I would do. Okay. I, I wanted this to for you to come to it fresh. And, and to have the experience of other people coming to it fresh. Um, I'm struck by the comfort in false heralds. The comfort? In false heralds, signs. Um, the boy says, a good sign. He sees the, the crane, and the crane, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, makes a crane noise. And um, the boy says, a good sign. And he feels good. And he continues. Mm-hmm. And he's hurrying. So I'm struck by the hurrying the most and the comfort in false heralds. Well, I think the point, you know, I, my, my take on some of the specifics and cultural aspects of this is no better than anybody else's. You know, I, I think I can see the Dharma in the story uh, in a particular way. But um, I think pretty universally you have a jackal and a crane and you would normally, as has been mentioned, look at the jackal, an eater of carrion in a particular way and look at the crane in another particular way. And here that's flipped in the story. So what is that offering us? Hello? Hello. Just to be clear, the mic is for the recording for people to hear later, not for our <laughs> uh, Yes, so I think that's that's for me also is is a question that uh, that's stood stood out is you know uh, we you mentioned sometime earlier um, to listen to the various. Um, um, say voices that that um, may present a particular sense of direction, uh, and and so I, I meant to ask you in this kind of like it came to to be a good good way to do so because there are different voices, and so you know I'm I'm trying to be discerning and pay attention, uh, you know where. They coming from who are they or what are they serving? How does it accord with what I understand of the Dharma, right? 
What can you say more in that process of discernment to see, you know, what is wholesome, even though it may be scary, and what is unwholesome, even, even though it may be alluring? So walk down the street here and see a person of color who's a bum and how you might think of them. Is that not a jackal? And then walk further towards the courthouse and see a lawyer in his suit. Is that not a crane? Do I need to say more? How do you have the eye to see past your own impression? How do you have that eye? I and I. How do you have that? Well, to me, that there are there are layers. You know that that there are different levels of perception, and even to my understanding, what might appear as 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 a jackal, upon further reflection or further inquiry, may appear as a crane, and vice versa. So, uh, but I'm asking you a question. What is the question? How do you have the eye to discern whether the person before you, for which you may have conditioned judgments about, who they actually are, or how they actually are, or how you understand them, beyond their apparent appearance? How do you, how, how, how do you see, how do you do that? I'm, I'm coming at it from a different perspective. You asked the question in terms of your internal dialogue. I'm answering that question, but I'm answering it out of that context. Yeah, I, I had more questions about the, the particular directions that I want to lead my life into. Yeah. Right? So but yeah. from what, to answer the question that you're, you're asking of me, I, I do feel when I, when I meet a person, whether it's a lawyer in a suit, or whether it's, it's the homeless person on the street, I see them as a human being. I can look them eye to eye, and I see them through and through. Even, you know, through their, their appearances of what they have. Um, it's both. It's both how, their how nature. And, uh, I think Zazen helped me to do that, to develop. But, but how? Because I see myself. I see, and I see, okay. I see myself. I see the same thing. That I see there, I see there. Okay. It, you know, I cannot say too much. I just, Good. I just can, okay. can see it. Stefanos, did you want to say something? Yes. This is an important point you've raised. Um, thank you. So um, my take on, on this uh, story is uh, maybe that decisions don't matter at the end of the day. So... Uh, in in the sense that if he had uh, followed the advice from the jackal, he would not have met the robber, mm-hmm. right? So that would have led him to a different story. So my my question is: at the end of the day, you you're gonna leave what you're gonna leave, no matter what you decide, and in each um, decision, you will find a learning 
in any case? Could that be uh, one well, of the interpretations? That's a possibility, but the karma of your decisions is going to be very different. And the life you're going to leave it, live at as a, as a result is going to be very different. So uh, everything could have been the same th- here, except he could have been robbed and dead. As a million or more incidents just like this have happened with that end result. I mean, the reason this is such a startling story is because this generally doesn't happen, right? When you meet robbers at a, at a time in which um, robbery was universal on the road, you get robbed. You may get murdered. And so one of the startling things of this story in, the, in its time uh, is that this is equivalent to us playing the stock market. We're going to get robbed. We won't get murdered, probably, but we're going to get robbed. It's a, you know, the game is fixed. Um, and everybody knows that. And everybody knows when you walk down that road in those times and places, um, it was very dangerous. You're risking your life. And the decisions you make, um, by chance or otherwise, uh, the outcomes are very different. It matters a great deal. It may not seem to matter to us because we're safe. We live in a life where our physical safety, um, for most of us, if not all of us in this room, is a given. But that isn't, has not historically been true for most of mankind's life. So I'm not quite agreeing with you. I think it matters a great deal what decisions you make. Now, we are also working with the story as it is. And, you know, that's in, in, in working with spiritual questions, you know, usually they're demarcated in a particular way, and that's what you're given. So if you're working with a koan, you have the information of the koan. And you have to see past that layer into what it's really pointing at, because it's never going to be on the surface. If it's on the surface, everyone would see instantly into the koan. But nobody does. So, you know, that's worth considering. Um, At the end of the day, it matters a great deal what we do and how we do it is my take. Now, having said that, if we're willing to learn from whatever decisions we make and whatever we we encounter, that also affects our karma a great deal. And, And in particular, so let's say he was robbed. What would be the, the spiritual perspectives of that for the boy? I don't know. I can't answer the question. We can only answer it in terms of ourself. We can't quite put ourselves there. Different time, different place. So we have to do it by analogy here. Have you ever been robbed? I know there are people in this room who have been robbed. And, you know, what was the spiritual lesson you learned from it? Did you eat? Did you eat? Right. So there's that. Asp- yeah. But is that a spiritual lesson? I mean, that's that's a common sense lesson. Right. You know, uh, put my wallet in my zipper pocket. Right. Um, and the equivalent for each of us appropriate. But there's other lessons to that. So I'm, I'm trying to draw it to this um, to this story. It's not so easy. It's easy for us sitting here to, to look at something and say, oh, yeah, we can take a spiritual lesson from that. But when your whole entire, uh, the, the thing that your life depends on 
is taken from you, of which there are millions of people now where that actually is true in this world. Um, are you thinking in terms of spiritual lesson? Are you thinking, how can I possibly get some water to drink and some food to eat? Uh, someone had a hand in that direction. So I think in terms of your previous question about like how do you see self and other as one, I don't have a I don't have a good answer, but I think I think you start by stopping. You just you stop. You stop your machinations. Um and that's very difficult for these men, the these bands of robbers in, in this time, because you you stop, you you die, someone else robs you, you get eaten by a beast. Um you know, life becomes too overwhelming for you. Um, I'm really glad that Rafe Martin starts out with the, the parallel to Robin Hood because he was one of my, my childhood heroes. Um, and I like the, you know, what I'm, what I'm taking from this story in terms of, in terms of thievery is, um, and I see thievery in, in different, I see it, you know, permeating in different levels in the story. I see it as, um, there's the, the senses that we call the, the thieves in, in Buddhism. So this, this person is being deceived. Stop, stop here. I want to come back. Why do we do that? Why do we call the senses the thieves? Because we also, so these are the skandhas. So we'll come back to that. Go on. And I also, uh, something that I'm drawing from, and maybe this is just, you know, indicative of my confusion is sometimes we, you know, the, the teachers will, will steal things from us, things that we don't need anymore. Um, I don't know if this is relevant, but the con that comes to mind is, uh, if I have a stick, I will give one to you. If you don't have a stick, I will take it away. Um, and maybe I'm going way off, maybe I'm way off base here, but I feel like the Buddha is even like stealing from this person by not stealing from him. He's, He's robbing him of the opportunity to, well, to realize that he's being a little bit foolish sometimes, or that he can be foolish, and just to be mindful of that. Yeah. So you're absolutely right in what you say. Uh, first, it is the job of the teacher to steal. That's their full-time job. Um, so that takes us back to the skandhas and the sensations. What's the problem there? Is there a problem? I mean, I, I come back to all dharmas, all phenomena, which includes our senses, are inherently pure. And yet, the fundamental teaching is that our senses are thieves. How do you reconcile those two things? What's, what's the challenge there? Let's see if there's anyone else who has not spoken and wants to... Take a shot at that. Appreciate what you said, Stephanos, because my question is what is what is being taken? You know, the question that comes up for me reading is what is being taken? And so um is it my understanding uh my reliance on um everything I I do in my day that that holds up my existence and that holds up the existence we've all created together and the assumptions about reality that we you know, just how we function in the world, in, in the relative world. And so 
um, what is being taken by a teacher or a teaching is to to um, to shake that up and to it, you know things get can get turned upside down and you can see things differently. The jackal perhaps is not um, the enemy. The crane is perhaps not the friend, but. Um, it, it I really, I think, yeah, it does go back to the skandhas and how we can't really rely on much of anything but what's on the, the face of it. With the skandhas, I mean, so we, so let's be more specific. I mean, we see something. What's the problem with seeing something? Nothing. Nothing's the problem with seeing. But something. the fundamental Buddhist teaching. Um, you know, is that seeing leads yeah. to something, right? Because it's what happens. It leads to consciousness. Yeah. What's the problem with consciousness? Uh, hold on, hold on. If you want to speak, raise your hand and we'll give you a microphone. It, it moves very quickly to make, dis, make, make discernments and to, What's to make separation between my, my consciousness and that thing. It creates okay. separation. So there's discrimination and attachment. Yeah. That's the problem with the skandhas. They're thieves. They invite us to sep- separate. They invite us to me and you. And therein lies the whole world of suffering. Are you raising it? Yeah, please, microphone. And so that... that um, okay, let me leave it at that. Yes, please. Well, I, I thought it was really funny that he said that this is only for the recording because we had the, we thought or like the assumption is that this will like make the volume higher. So we're always assuming things of the way things work and it's not like this. And, and, and I think more and more I see it all like things are not the way we think they are and we rely on our senses uh, and we rely on like knowledge or science or rational the rational mind and mo- and the story I think for me the story points to um, how do you call that uh, prejudice the prejudice uh, sorry <laughs> the prejudice of uh, that we have in our daily life or that people had in 2500 years ago <laughs> Uh, of what an animal could be or the spirit of an animal. Like it's not the same a cow that, what is a, a shark or something. Um, and I think I, I'm, for me, it's very, I, I love the idea that the Bodhisattva is a robber. <laughs> um, I have no problems with that. I like that. Um, and I was, I, you said something that I kept thinking. You said that in that moment, he was a bodhisattva. So my question is, can you be a bodhisattva and stop being and be again? Can you be a bodhisattva? Can you be a bodhisattva, let's say, at 8 a.m. in the morning and at 12 not be and tomorrow be again? Like for moments, you are bodhisattva. Um, and I, and I was just thinking if, if it should be a spiritual practice to see every single thing as a bodhisattva, uh, because, because they're the, te- the teacher is always the microphone, you know, the crane, whatever it is, you know, the taxes. And, and I feel that that's 
that's that's like the ongoing battle, right? As long as you don't get that mixed up with the physical teacher, who's not always. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. I think. Okay. That's, that's, so let me say a couple of things. Um, the reality that we see and relate to through our senses, which includes a mind, is not the true reality. So what's missing from that statement? The reality, as we've been discussing, that we see with our senses and our discriminating mind is not true reality. That's, I'm paraphrasing what you said. Nor does it otherwise. And so therein lies the trouble, all of the trouble, that if we go to one side and live out of assuming that everything we see is a delusion, and therefore we need to step back from it, we're stuck on one side, suffering will result. And if we go to the other side and say everything is wonderful and pure and clear, then there's no possibility of living the life, the true life of a bodhisattva with all the suffering in the world. And so I'm coming back to the question of how, how do you see in reality? How do you see the jackal and the crane? How do you see um, the robber? How do you see the bum on the street? How do you see yourself? How do you see where you have a wonderful and fantastic uh, moment that you will not attach to in generosity and love? Of course, we know we will, but that's a different problem. Versus the next moment or hour in which in some subtle or overt way we're stealing stealing somebody's power, stepping in front of somebody in line, cutting somebody off, acting out of our blind conditioning because I'm a man and you're a woman, or I'm white and you're black, or, 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 or. How does that work? So I'm really raising the question you asked. Floor is open. I think the thing about the bodhisattva being a robber is, like you said, he's the leader of the robbers, and he's done, he's clearly done, you know, horrible things probably for most of his life in pursuit of what he's been doing. And then this time, he might be the first time that he decided to do something different. And like you said, it might be the last thing he's done, but he changed what he had been conditioned to do and did something good instead. And then this is one of the things that led him to being the Buddha later. So what you're saying is crucial and goes back to a number of people said they had trouble relating to, to the story or to his action. as a. But here it is. We don't know, but here it is. Have you ever had an epitome, epitome, epiphany. epiphany, thank you, where you've done an action that you've done a million times before, and perhaps out of that million times before, all of a sudden you recognize, it clicks in, this 
causes suffering. This way of me interrupting you or fill in the blanks causes suffering. Or this, me stepping back and not saying, <clears throat> not saying anything during a public meeting. <laughs> Just an idle <laughs> throwing it out there. Uh, causes suffering for you and for others. Um, and something changes in you. And maybe your behavior does not change. But something has happened, which is, you know, as they say, tending in that. It's a like. <laughs> uh, forgive me, God. He knows not what he does. <laughs> you get the idea. It's, it's trending. <laughs> Here he goes again. In, it, it, trending upward. You know, something is happening. If the mind of practice is there. So I want to go back again. Did you have more to say? I want to go back again to how do we know? What's the difference between um, that askandas are pure and whole? Um, The Dharma is inherently pure and whole, and the skandas are the source of all suffering. What's the difference? So I'm going to approach this. I'm going to throw that up in the air and approach this story and that question from, from a different I'll get back there from a different angle. The second precept says, refrain from stealing. Don't steal. So the precepts have levels to them. And the the Theravadan perspective of that is an absolute. Don't steal. End of story. There's nothing else to say or do about it. Now, it's viewed historically from don't steal physical things. Don't take what is not yours. And that's a specific perspective. Does anybody know what the Mahayana perspective of that precept is? I'm sorry? A, a microphone? Microphone? Or how might we quote that precept within the within a Mahayana perspective? Well, I'm just reading literally because I have this, the precepts with me all the time. Good idea. Uh, yeah. Well, no, yeah, it doesn't help me. Okay, if I don't read it, I bet it does. <laughs> Not really. Um, so, <laughs> um, it helps be, me that you have it with it. Be Here we giving, go. <laughs> do not steal. Be giving. Be giving. Right. Yeah. So, you know, an adaptation is. Um, be giving. Do not steal. Two sides. Right? So, be giving. G-I-V-I-N-G. B-B-E. Giving. No, that's something similar but different. Um, generosity is one of the paramitas, and that has a different, similar but different flavor. This is a, a, a guideline to our conduct in our life. Um, so be giving, do not steal. So when two people are having a conversation, what does it mean to be giving, do not steal? 
to to really be present and listen to see that person mm-hmm. so um suppose that person is saying a lie and creating hostility and evil con- conduct how do you uphold that precept <laughs> You are not going to get away with that. He, he or she who has the mic. How would you be giving do not steal? The um, person's telling but, an overt but, but, lie. Yeah. They're harming others. Mm-hmm. I'm just setting this up. Mm-hmm. And you're there doing your best to listen. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Can you, can you flesh it out a little bit more? No. Are there, is it just me and the other person? Are there other people there? Sure. Sure. Stop wiggling around. Well, um, I wouldn't steal the person's humanity by um, interrupting their lie. If I can find a way to um, allow them to not lose face, in a sense, and not have the exposure of their lie turn into a resentment that leads to more suffering. Mm -hmm. So you're willing to accept their lies as just as it is? No, I'm willing to. I'm. I'm. I'm hoping to find a way to, um, to work with their lie and and shed light, but not steal their humanity by, um, humiliating them or telling them, you know, y- you're completely invalid or you're wrong. Do, can you imagine a set of circumstances where, um, telling them disagreeing with that them. And expressing that um, and contradicting contradicting them upholds the precept. Well, yes. I mean, I think that you know what I've learned from the study of the precepts is that sometimes, um, you know, be giving, do not steal, unless stealing is going to be the most beneficial thing or the most skillful thing. To who? To whoever is being harmed, the person who's lying is doing harm to themselves because they're incurring the karma of the So you're feeling harm. You're feeling the effect of that poison. Maybe. Yeah. So is that the basis to correct them and to point that out to them? Is that a basis? Well, I mean, we have to shed the light of truth. Well, that's contradicting. Isn't that contradicting what you said before? No, not at all. Why not? You said you were listening to them. Right. And honoring them. By and I'm looking them. for a way to shed light on what they're putting in the dark. I'm just looking to do it in a way that doesn't cause um, further suffering. So what's the most skillful action? I, I really can't say that out of context. Okay. So that's the point. That is the point. That in the relative world, it's all context. And what makes that dharma pure? So what does make that dharma pure? You're having a conversation with someone who's sprouting lies. You don't have to think too far to see this on your TV, right? Uh, Although that's not necessarily a conversation or it's a one-way conversation. Uh, But in real life, you will encounter this. Who's either sprouting lies or, or acting under deep... out of deep misunderstandings and mistruths and prejudices and harmful ways. Um, So how do you act? What upholds the precept? So who did I 
point to and say just one second? Anyone? Is there anyone who has not spoken yet? <laughs> She's going to say she has spoken. <laughs> Is that a liar? <laughs> she spoke the whole tale. Quote. So go on, please. Oh, I was waiting. They were stopped no, talking. Um, I think in the context of that conversation, sometimes if I'm going to speak, I, I sometimes I try to go through my little list. Is it is it if I want to respond or say something, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? If I don't have anything that I feel like would fit those categories, then sometimes I might not say anything. Sometimes on Facebook, if I'm not sure I can do that or add something, I back away sometimes. So yesterday they were just, someone was talking about Elizabeth Warren and, oh, I hate her. She should apologize for saying she's Indian. And I'm like, I just decided to step in because I'm from Massachusetts, and I think she's a great senator for what we have. But I said, look, there's no one perfect, but between her and Kamala Harris, they're the closest to Mr. Smith we have. You know, no one is perfection, but they Does stand up to the fossil fuel. Mr. Smith? They stand up to the fossil fuel. They stand up to this administration. They stand up to the billionaires on Wall Street. And, you know, we have to decide not to go after little, every little battle, but look for the war, look for the deeper truth. And I felt like I could add that. And no one trolled me back. I mean, no one said anything against what I said. And so I always feel like if I'm going to say something, I try to look at those three aspects. I mean, Was it's never online when you said troll you back. Well, I mean, no one, like, says anything negative back to me or tries to fight back. Like, sometimes I like to read comment feeds, and someone's mm-hmm. like, blah, 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 because they're yelling at each other, and then blah, 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 but they're not doing suppose that. suppose someone had argued with you. Sometimes then I'll delete my comment, because <laughs> I'm like, okay. if, if it's not doing any good, I put it out into the world, and now I'm just going to diffuse that comment, and then it's okay. So it's impermanent. What, what defines skillful means? So upaya is a a Buddhist term for skillful means. So what is skillful means, and we had a whole ongo on this, based on? What, what defines, where we're in the relative world, my skillful means is different than your skillful means. Uh, how I go about doing something is different, how each of us go about doing something. Um, so what, what defines that? So one way is time, place, position, and degree, which is what defines the relative perspective of the precepts. Um, So, um, again, I'm quoting from Daito Roshi, but actually this comes from Yasutani Roshi, who was the first person that I'm aware of that looked at the precepts from this perspective as the heart of how to function in the relative world. And so I'll, I'll quote Daito Roshi's example of what I do as a lover and husband that's appropriate to that time, place, position, and degree is completely appropriate. That same action done to someone else in a different context is a horror of transgression as well as probable, perhaps a crime. Same action. So you're looking at the time of the action in, in a broad and narrow sense, Place, the place of the action, the position, authority, power, 
and the amount of the action that upholds. These are all relative things, and they're all dependent on you and your understanding of this. And this is very, very powerful. And, and of course, the politicians ignore this all the time, right? The politicians do what we tend to do with a story like this. They size, seize the irrelevant aspects, as you pointed out, of positions, magnify it, blow it up, and then throw it out there as propaganda. Um, completely unskillful. And it's a lie. It's also stealing. Um, so our sensitivity... Are you signaling me? For what? That's all right. We're going to at least 830. Um, um, if anyone has to leave, please. The, the, the rules are you can get up, you can go to the bathroom, you can leave anytime you need to. He may need help getting out the door, though. He may need help getting out the door. Um, so, so that's ours. But what does that rest on? What does a precept, time, place, position, and degree rest on? Which is what I've been trying to get at the whole time. And, and it's interesting because as soon as I start to go there with, with these kinds of questions, it bounces off. It, it bounces off and lands in another question, which is at an angle having nothing to do with the first question. Yes. Uh, microphone, please. So see that. This is really important. What, what's at the bottom of this? Please. So sort of, so sort of on this point, I, there's a famous study that was done about uh, how the United States changed its views about GBLT marriage. Um, and one of the things they found was that if you told your story about being GBLT and wanting to get married, people tended to change their mind because they shared who they are. Can you speak up a little? So there's a very famous study, that, a political science study that was done about back before the court cases about GBLT marriage, uh, about how to change people's minds about GBLT marriage. Like what was mm-hmm. the best messaging since people want to know this. And they found that people saying why, how their GBLT, how it affects their lives and why they want to be married and like, as a person to person, it helped change minds, which is one mm-hmm. of the reasons why it's now legal in the United States. Um, so what's the point? I thought, it, first of all, I thought it was interesting that they were sharing themselves, but then it got me to wondering about the sort of contextual aspects of yourself to this question about being a lover. Like, would I be different if, I mean, how much of myself is true if I were born 200 years ago and wore big puffy skirts, right? Like, and or, like, or we're oh, living in Nazi Germany. Or living in Nazi Germany. As a Christian. Right. Like, in 1936. I was living in Berlin in 19. I've thought about that. Like, what would my life be like? Like, on one hand, I could go to really cool clubs. On the other hand, I'm from a Jewish background. Like, maybe I couldn't go to my cool clubs. Um, uh, and I'm not sure as a result how to answer, like, that question. Because if you're trying to share, like, that sort of essential truth of yourself, right, in order to talk about those sorts of sense of lies, like how much of that is contextual? Like I don't, wouldn't, like the Nazi German question, like how different would I be in 1936? Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's a question each of us have to face during our life, in, often in little and often invisible ways. And we have to make decisions often in which the consequences to whatever decision we make create suffering and harm. 
for ourselves or others. This happens all the time in, in our life. And we have to make that choice and be responsible if we make it with some degree of awareness and be responsible for that. But I want to get back to my question. What is it that grounds that choice? I, Lee, did you want to say anything? But we need a mic, if you do. And I know, I'm, I know you wanted to talk before, and I didn't call you. Yeah, so. it's, it's kind of out of place right now, but what I was going to say at that point is that um, suffering is in the mind. Um, some Evil is in the eye of the beholder. And I can't remember the other quote. Oh, yes, and all the rest is commentary. But you're getting into details now, which are somewhat interesting. And that's what I was going to say then. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um, would would what those other things are resting on, would that be karma, our karma? Well, they do, but that's not important. Okay. The karma is always there. It's never not there. Did you want? Yes. <laughs> I was aware of you. <laughs> I knew <laughs> you were not going to get away unscathed. <laughs> I mean, to be able to discern the right, uh, you know, the right time, manner, and place, uh, you know, it's, it's what the robber is saying. You should pay attention. You, know, you have to be able to discern these things. It's not, you have to catch yourself and make sure, I mean, to stop and, see what situation you're in and what the right action is. I mean, that all, you face these decisions all the time. You're not necessarily going to make it right, but you can be aware of what you're bringing to a situation. Okay. I want to point out two things, which, so bear with me. I'm going to be very direct in a moment. But first, I want to start with the right decision. So I think you can take it from here. Can you? What about this right decision? Oh, there probably isn't just one. Or any. Or any. (laughs) It's your decision and your karma. Whatever you decide is your decision. I've I've used this example a number of times in in my medical practice years ago. Um, I was a podiatrist, and I would sometimes have little old ladies who needed to see me who would, with great difficulty in transportation and other life circumstances, get to my office And because I kept them waiting, faced very great difficulty in getting back. And on a couple of occasions, not too many, but a couple of occasions, in the middle of my day, I took that person and got in my car and drove them home, which took about 20 minutes. And everyone else waited. And my office staff went crazy. Right? Makes sense for them to go crazy. They have a different purpose. And I'm keeping everybody waiting. And that's my responsibility. That's my choice that I made. And there were other times when I did not do that, and I could have done that. Many more other times when I knew of the difficulty that the person was in, some of which I had contributed to or not, and could have acted or could have asked some member of my staff to do it, but chose not to for different reasons. In all cases, I'm responsible. All those situations, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for what's going on with my awareness and my decisions. And that's my karma. The other thing I want to keep pointing at is how my question 
of what all this rests on is not being addressed. And I just want to, and I understand that, and I'm pushing here. But um, that's the point, that's the whole point of this evening. Can you pass that back to the Jakai student who's sitting in the back row? To your question about how, and I'll just rephrase it, it as I understand it, to how we approach or get to time, place, position, and degree. I mean, we use the same mind that creates the su- the suffering. We use that same mind. To do what? To you to com- to use wisdom and compassion to to take a Thank step you. forward. Thank you. That's what the relative world rests on. Your discernment of wisdom and compassion. Now, those are nice words. Yeah. What does that actually mean? Yeah. So, uh, so I'm asking a question for everybody. What does it actually mean in the moment in which you are face-to-face with somebody who's in a difficult situation that you can or cannot enter? What does your wisdom and compassion mean and function in that moment? How, how does it go past these words, wisdom and compassion? Uh, I had to start doing that when our son was almost a teenager, and I expected things from him. He didn't do them, so he'd come in from school, ignore me, and go up to his room and close his door. When I put myself in his place and said, what would my, I want my mother to say to me at this point, and I looked at how I was acting my behavior changed. He'd come in, he'd greet me, he'd hug me, kiss me, and then he would go to his room like and a teenager you. would. <laughs> Sorry? And ignore you. <laughs> and ignore me. But I had to put myself in his place, and what would I want my mother to do at the time? And, of course, based on kindness, as people have already said. Based on what? Kindness. Where does that kindness come from? I don't know. Stephanos. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I didn't call on you. I deserve a gold star for that. (laughs) I don't know. There's so many things that have been said, so I don't know what to add. But I was just thinking about um, the Bodhisattva, who is this robber. And he's probably because of his karma and his actions, he's he's doing something uh, that we all consider as as something very bad. And um, I was just thinking that it doesn't matter like how low we go, we always have that uh, possibility of doing differently. I mean. Even a, even a robber can do right. So, um, yeah, that we have we have that chance in every moment to do what we think is right. Thank you. That's called practice. That's called changing our karma. And that's the whole basis of what we're doing here, because all of us have a long history of hurting other people and ourselves. All of us, without exception. And. There's no way to for this practice to take a bite out of you and open up your heart 
take a bite out of our sense of separateness and open up our heart and um, allow us to accept the love that has always been offered to us, is always being offered to us, unceasingly, without acknowledging the not just the tendency, but the trail we leave behind us in our ignorance of other. And that other doesn't exist, but we create it. And that's another way of talking about the skandhas and, and consciousness and attachment to our consciousness. That's called me, you. Um, and so in, in an essential Sunday, we're going to do a fusatsu ceremony. And that's completely what that's about. It's an acknowledgement, all evil karma ever committed by me since time immemorial. Now, I repent for that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's a very general statement. But as we practice more and more, this becomes alive for us. And it's no longer general. Um, and so a tale like this, when taken into what is stealing, what does it mean to take, what does it mean to receive, um, rests, on, rests on absolutely the heart of compassion. That's what it rests on. That's, that's what you can trust. And what does the heart of compassion rest on? Self and other is a delusion. There is a self. There is other. And it's a delusion. Both those two things are true. And you don't want to fall on one side or the other. There is a self and there is another. Right? Your senses tell you that. And there is no other. Both those are true. Now, how will you live in the midst of that? And so we're practicing realizing there is no other. That's Zazen. That's, that's the whole basis that this practice rests on. There is no other. And having, beginning to encounter that in our zazen, even though we don't know we are, and, and we don't know, but it, it imbues us, it permeates us, it infects us in the best sense of infection. And we change as a result. And there's no measurement, there's no scale of that, except our life needs to change in response of that. And out of that, and, you know, all the precepts are, are, you know, actually functioning what's happening as you continue to practice. But in the meantime, we need guidelines. We need to study them. We need to take them up because every day we're facing these moral questions of self and other. And how will we navigate them? And what does it mean to steal? What does it mean to lie, Mr. President? What does it mean for me to lie? What does it mean for me to lie with compassion as the underlying basis, seeing into self and other? are one. What does it mean to tell a lie or to steal? And what does it mean to tell a lie to steal without that? They're very, very different things. And the karma is extremely different. Extremely different. Well, you're holding the microphone. I'm just holding the microphone. I think you finalize everything so well. well, So, go on, um, please. So... um, Though his men protest, Bodhisattva doing something for the boy, he's doing something great. But for his men, he's kind of leaving them behind 
putting them in the difficult situation, even in that moment, we see two things, two actions going one for good and one for bad. This man wouldn't take it as good as the boy would. Maybe it would definitely change boy's life, but this man can suffer. So the same at the moment when we have a conversation with someone who lies us, um, it would be also they, they're doing something bad, but uh, wouldn't be something else besides that them lying in their action that would give another direction at that point. Yeah, and when we're on the receiving end of that, that's our call. You know, time, place, position, degree, what's skillful, what helps. And so the question I'm continually asking myself as much as I can during the day in responding to my life circumstances is, does this help? Does this actually help? When I forget that, then I'm not helping. I'm just responding automatically. And I forget it plenty of times. But it's my aspiration to remind myself to that. Any final thoughts? So, um, I apologize. I didn't, I didn't have the story and I don't know it, but I, I have like a, a small scenario that happened to me, like a triad of karma that's very confusing for me, mm-hmm. but it has to do with stealers and savers. And so when I first came to the city, I was living in Soho and there was not a ticket booth where I was. So you just go to the turnstile and you can't get back in. So I was the last one out and there was a young man there. And he um, asked me if I had a, some money or a dollar, and I didn't. I had zero. And then he took out a knife, and he started coming at me. And it was so, I mean, I can put myself back decades now. I mean, it's, it was petrifying to me. So part of me is like, okay, karma, I'm not doing anything wrong. <laughs> I'm just, like, trying to get home, you know, because I was working. And... um but then there was a woman who had gone up the stairs, but she, I think she felt him lurking back. She came to the top of the stairs. She couldn't see, but she yelled down. She's like, are you okay down there? Because she had seen him. And, you know, the, and I'm really good in the crisis. I'm a helper. But during this situation, I couldn't even have a voice. I was like, help, help. Like my voice didn't work. But the guy backed up. So there's like this karma here that whatever it was, her coming, I mean, he could not have backed up because she didn't come down the stairs, but, and there was no cell phones to call. You had to go to a payphone. So then I was able to run up the stairs a little bit and I greeted her a little. And then the guy just walked up and cool as a cucumber. He would just walk by and, you know, I called the police and I was like, I don't remember what he looks like. I remember the knife. I mean, I know the race, the, the sex, but to me, that's a confusing part of karma because there was, I felt like karma is being done to me. And then this guy is the stealer. I mean, it could have been much worse, believe me. And then there's this woman who saved me. So that's really confusing to me. I don't think this is the time and place to take that up. I gave a workshop on karma Mm -hmm. the week before Ango, a full day on that. You took it? Mm -hmm. Does that, can you recall anything about that? Um, Not right. No, but I mean, I just felt like the story fit into what we were talking about, but it's like a, just a very, you know, confusing not, not story. every action is karmic from a Buddhist perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, intent is primary. 
And so the fact that you were held up or perhaps harmed in some other way um, may or may not be karmic. We don't know sometimes. Most of the time, I think we don't know. We don't know our karma. The Buddha said, I don't know all my karma. Um, And so um, I'm going to leave it at that because that's a huge subject which, while, you know, in a sense, sure, karma is a part of this. It's not the primary thing that I like to offer out of this story. And I'm giving that workshop again at the monastery sometime next, whenever. Um, And um, karma is at the heart of this practice and our life. Um, Last call. Do you have a microphone? Hold on, microphone. Microphone. Hold on. I know we need to go. Um, So who was the teacher and who was the student here? It's like, I think... The kid was the teacher because it was it was the bodhisattva that developed compassion and changed his behavior, and the the boy really, you know, nothing really happened to him. He didn't change, so I think that was. Who do you think is the teacher? The boy, but the boy because it was the bodhisattva who made the changes and was compassionate and let him go. <laughs> With all, with all due respect, I think it's the thief. I mean, it's defined that way. Who taught himself? No. I mean, it's, the, the thief is the Buddha to come. Mm-hmm. He's the teacher here. I mean, as clearly... I mean, you can take this from any direction you want, and you're welcome to do that. But in terms of how this story is historically understood, this is the Buddha. Mm-hmm. The thief is the Buddha, and that's the whole point in terms of relating to you. And, um, you know, I don't know if there's echoes here that you don't want to accept that a thief is good. (laughs) And if so, that's worth looking at. (laughs) Um, But from the perspective of this story, this... You can see it anywhere. You're welcome to see it any way you want to see it. But we're going to end in any case. So let's end with the four vows, please. Thanks so much for listening. The Monastery's quarterly journal, Mountain Record, has a new home at mountainrecord.org. For over 30 years, Mountain Record has been offering spiritual seekers of all faiths a unique journey through words and images. Each quarterly issue delivers a thought-provoking array of classic teachings, contemporary wisdom, stunning photographs, and news from the Mountains and Rivers Order. For more information, to subscribe, or to read our open-access articles, visit mountainrecord.org.